0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. What a week it's been. So let's get right down to the Republican shenanigans. We have a House of Representatives and we have a Speaker of the House. As you know, last week, Kevin McCarthy was elected, but he's going to be governing with a straitjacket because there's actually a, uh, a shadow speaker or several shadow speakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Chip Roy, Lauren Boebert, because of what he gave away. Well, let's first talk about the rules package that passed 220-213 uh, along party lines. Only one Republican defection, that was Tony Gonzalez of Texas. The problem for the Republicans is that there was a lot of closed-door agreements that McCarthy made with a handshake to the, the rebels, the 19 or 20 rebels that caused the, the voting to take a week last week. And so you have these Freedom Caucus hardliners who were promised God knows what the concessions we know about, for example, debt ceiling hikes will be paired with spending cuts. He promised to hold votes on bills that were important to Freedom Caucus members. He promised to put more Freedom Caucus members on committees and, and the key committees, and also cap discretionary spending at fiscal twenty two levels. There was also, you know, a, a goal to make governing more transparent. But the, the, the problem is, that how do you have transparency when, when no one really knows about these backdoor deals? What was promised to Matt Gates in the 11th hour? What was promised originally to someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene weeks ago, which made her come on board with Kevin McCarthy from, from the beginning? Without knowing what these deals are, how, how the hell do we have transparency? And we have, you know, issues that are coming up, like the debt ceiling and, and the spending bills. And these are going to be big fights in, in Congress And what did he promise about that? Did he promise that we're gonna shut down the government and just make everything political? Um, We don't know. And this is gonna hamper Congress's ability to fund the government, funding which includes the military, military funding which includes aid to Ukraine. I mean, they're playing games with aid to Ukraine. Um, And of course, we may once again find ourselves facing a catastrophic federal debt default. So these are all things that need to come out. We need to understand what was promised in these backdoor agreements, and I don't think we're going we're gonna to find out. Another thing that happened this week as part of this is that they're going to gut the Ethics Committee. The biggest issue with the Ethics Committee is term limits, and what's going to happen is you have like three Democrats whose terms expire, and they're going to get booted. And of course, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat leader, He's going to have an opportunity to replace them. It's all going to look great. All the optics are going to look great. But what's going to happen when they get into closed doors is that it's going to take forever to approve these Democrats. So it's just Democrats won't have the kind of influence that they had before. And the other thing that happened this week, which is just mind-blowing, is the ongoing George Santos saga. And... By the way, Santos, when he heard about the Ethics Committee being gutted, he was like, I think it's fantastic. That's a quote. That's a quote. Now, of course he's gonna think it's fantastic because he's the first one they're coming after. And the Ethics Committee is supposed to be a bipartisan, independent body within the Congress. And it's made up equally of Republicans and Democrats. So there's some games that are gonna be played and whether or not Santos is negatively impacted as he should be down the road, still remains an issue. So let's play the Santos clip.
1: You know, when you donated that money to your campaign, is there anything else you can say about the work you did that was the
0: origin of of those resources? Look, I've,
2: I've worked my entire life. I've lived an honest life. I've never been accused, sued, of of any bad doing. So, you know, it's it's my... It's the equity of my hard-working self, and I've I invested inside of me. Like I said, it didn't come from Burisma. It didn't come from Ukraine, Russia, China, unlike some folks that we all know that get money from those sources.
0: He's lived an honest life. Completely. Honest. Inside himself. Inside himself. <laughs> inside of me. There's a song I'm thinking of. Oh, well, yeah, that's great. I, I mean, what alternate universe do we live in where someone like George Santos, mind you, he's, he's doing an interview with Matt Gates, like, so... It, the the optics of that are insane, but I've lived an honest life. And you, Matty, you mentioned before before we started that, in fact, he did receive funding from...
2: Yes, as a Russian oligarch, which gave money to his campaign fund.
0: So we learned this week that there was a, a, an impersonation of a McCarthy aide, a fundraiser for Santos, somebody who calls and makes phone calls to raise money for George Santos, allegedly posed as McCarthy's chief of staff, Dan Meyer. This was a, an effort to raise money from wealthy donors. He also used a fake email address to send follow-up emails to donors. There's like nothing, he is just so pathologically lying and, and dishonest in everything he does, which makes his comment, I have, I've lived an honest life, even that much more insane. But there's been absolute silence from the, the leadership of the Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy has literally said nothing negative about Santos, but in fact has said this.
1: County GOP call on me to resign today. Does that affect your thinking at all? What do you intend to do about Congressman Santos? I try to stick by the Constitution. The voters elected him to serve. If there is a concern that he has to go through the ethics, we'll let him move through that. But right now, the voters have have a voice in the decisions. that where people pick and choose based upon what somebody's press house. Would you? Um, so he will continue to serve. Are you going to take any action against him at this point? Are any of these allegations acceptable to you? What are the charges against him? Well, I mean, is there a charge against him? It, you know,
0: in America today, you're innocent until proven guilty. So let's unpack what Kev has to say there. First of all, he was elected by people who were lied to. So a fraud was elected. If I run for Congress and I say, hey, I've got 52 medals from the Vietnam War, and they elect me because I'm a war hero, and then I'm a liar because I never went to Vietnam, that's not being elected. That's being deceived. So the 132,000 or whoever, I think it was 132,000 people who voted for George Santos were duped, okay? That's number one. Number two, he's going to go before the ethics committee. Which one? The one you just gutted? Okay. That sounds interesting. Number three, innocent until proven guilty, the man, and I say that I use that term loosely. Santos admitted to lying. He admitted it. So he's already proven guilty. But yet, crickets, crickets Adam McCarthy. And why? Because he's got a four-vote margin in his house, in his caucus. And if he does anything to which would result in um, Santos resigning or being expelled, that brings his margin down to three, which is a 25% reduction in his margin... And I mean, my God, you know, it's all politics. He's literally just playing politics, but this is such a stain on the GOP that is going to be the 800-pound gorilla in the, in the room for the next two years. But he is facing criminal investigation, so putting politics aside, there is something that may impact him in a pretty big way criminally.
2: And just to note that his margin, the only reason Kevin McCarthy is actually Speaker of the House is because of New York's wins. And that includes Mark Molinaro and a whole slew of others right. in upstate New York. And the thing is, Santos is going to destroy that margin in 2024. The longer he stays there, New York is completely tainted. Every Republican in New York is tainted.
0: Yeah, he should be, you know, there's a part of me that feels like just leave him out there. Don't do anything. Make him the po- He's the poster child for the corruption and and swamp. That is the Republican Party right now. Yes, Did the we, new
2: face, yeah. for sure. I agree.
0: And you know, speaking of Mar- Molinaro, there's been a bunch of Republicans and also the Nassau County Republican Party, which has come out calling for Santos to resign. Mark Molinar- M- Molinaro from New York 17, Nick Langworthy from New York 23, Brandon Williams, New York 22. These are all upstate New York congressmen, and they are calling for Santos to resign. So I think there's a groundswell that's occurring right now And when these things happen, you could sit at your desk on a Friday and by Monday, the world could change. So things are moving quickly. It doesn't matter what Kevin McCarthy says. It doesn't matter what George Santos says. It it just matters in this intangible court of public opinion and media shitstorm, how that ball moves and rolls and how quickly it rolls downhill because it's rolling downhill for Santos. Another thing that the the Republicans have done this week so honorably is McCarthy vows to kick Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff off their, and Ilhan Omar off their committees. Let's go to that clip.
1: If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have
2: Swalwell on any committee. Adam Schiff openly lied to the American public. He told you he had proof. He told you he didn't know the whistleblower. He put America for four years through an impeachment that he knew was a lie.
0: I'm not gonna speak to this much because it's just obvious bullshit, but this is nothing but grievance and revenge. You know, you had Paul Gosar and Marjorie Greene who were booted off their committees a few years ago, and this is just payback for that. But the irony here is that, I don't know if you remember, You know, Paul Gosar tweeted this image of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Biden basically getting murdered and like, this is what the Republican Party is. It's like, okay, you get rid of our guy who, you know, sort of intimated that these two politicians should get murdered and we'll just get rid of two people who are simply doing their job. It's just disgusting how this is, this is how they govern. And, and, on, and along those lines this week, they also created a select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Uh, again, more grievance, more vengeance, revenge for their God, Trump. This is their priority. This is their priority, not inflation, not jobs, not the economy, the the crime or the border crisis. It's all about continued fealty to Trump. More grievance, more revenge. Investigations into President Biden, investigations into Hunter Biden, Dr. Fauci impeaching Biden and DHS, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We just learned in the last 24 hours that there's talk of expunging Trump's impeachments, which is just it's unbelievable. This is what they're going to be focused on. Absolute bullshit. Not so much Trump news per se this week, except that the, the grand jury in Georgia convened, and hopefully we will see an indictment soon. The big news, really big news that dropped like in the last 24, 48 hours, or whatever, is that they found... Uh, There was classified documents in Biden's office that he was using when he was involved with a think tank in Washington, and then a second set of documents that were found in his garage at home, next to the infamous Corvette. (laughs) The Corvette, locked garage, red Corvette. Yesterday, Merrick Garland said at 1.15 p.m., I'm going to make an announcement. And of course, every libtard like me is like, this is it, this is it, here comes the indictments. Here comes the indictment. What comes? What comes? A fucking special counsel, a special prosecutor to investigate Joe. Not only did we not get an indictment of Trump, we got a special prosecutor to investigate Biden. I'm trying real hard, people, real hard, to keep positive about Garland, to, to, to maintain that what goes on at the... Department of Justice is not something we see because they keep secret. But with how long it took him to appoint a special prosecutor for Trump, and now we know that sort of, you know, in December when Jack Smith was appointed, that's when things started to heat up with, in you know, subpoenas. And then all of a sudden, like it takes just a few days to get a special prosecutor when, it's, when it involves Biden. And the two situations could not be more different. It seems that Garland Is playing politics, that he is trying to placate the right-wing crazies. But no one, no one should ever, 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 ever assume that you can placate the right-wing crazies. There is never going to be a scenario ever, ever, where they sit back and go, Well, you know, Garland did do the right thing. He did, you know, he he appointed special prosecutors in both situations. They're both Trump appointees, by the way, and they did do their investigation. And while Trump was indicted, we feel comfortable that it was a fair investigation of Biden, even though he did. Are you fucking crazy to think that that's ever going to happen? There is nothing Garland could do, nothing, no outcome, no outcome where he's not going to be swimming in a shitstorm. None. So I hope there's no politicking taking place at at Justice, because if you're trying to make the Republicans happy, you're never going to make them happy. And Trump should be indicted, without question. Biden shouldn't be indicted, without question. If those two outcomes come, it is going to be an explosive situation for Garland. And I hope he does the right thing. And I hope he's prepared for that, because it seems like these moves that he's been making just are, are trying to placate Republicans and he's never going to be able to get the outcome that way that he wants. And these situations, they are different. Let's, let's hear what Biden had to say.
1: People know I take classified classified information seriously. When my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, they set up an office for me, secure office in the Capitol. When I, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn. They found some documents in a box, you know, locked cabinet. Or at least the closet and as soon as they did they realized there were several classified documents in that box and they did what they should have done they immediately called the archives immediately called the archives turned them over to the archives and i was briefed about this discovery been surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office but i don't know what's in the documents i've my lawyers have not Suggest that I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon. And there will be more detail at that time. So here's the key difference.
0: With, with Donald Trump, you had, yeah, I, I, I didn't take them. Yeah, I did take them. No, they were planted. Okay, they were implanted. I took them, and I took them, why? Because they're mine, and you know what? I don't have them anymore. Oh, okay, now you come and you find them, so I lied about that. Oh, do I have any more? No, I don't have any more. Oh, you actually found more. Oh, and they're still mine, and I'm not giving them back, and it's going to take over a year for you to get them, and I'm not going to cooperate, blah, 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 blah. That's Trump. Biden? Holy shit, I didn't know we had him. Come, let's take everything you got, um, let's cooperate, and let's get to the bottom of this, and, and you investigate, and whatever. Those are two very different situations. When you're talking about intent or action versus cooperation, the public statements that are made, check out what Trump publicly said versus what you just heard Biden say. These are two completely, utterly different situations.
1: And guess who agrees with that? Call Rove. There are differences. For example, how many documents? In Biden's case, there appear to be about 10. In the case of President Trump, hundreds. How did they get there? We don't yet know how the documents got to the Biden office connected with his activities on behalf of the University of Pennsylvania. We know that President Trump ordered the removal of the documents to Mar-a-Lago. How responsive were they? When the the Biden people found out about it, they called immediately, called the appropriate authorities and turned them over. We spent a year and a half watching the drama unfold in Mar-a-Lago and it had to end in a police search to recover the documents.
0: Look, when you've got Carl Rove saying it's bullshit, okay, then you know we're onto something. Look, the truth is, this was a likely mistake. These documents were inadvertently taken, probably by a very low-level assistant, when Biden was vice president and and his office was being packed up. Yeah, are there questions? Sure. Why did he take them? What's in them? Why did he wait two and a half months to reveal that he had them. Why didn't he say earlier this week that there was a second case when he knew there was? But that still doesn't e- create a false equivalency, the, you know, justify a false equivalency. These are not the same. And look, I, I want to end this segment before we bring on our guest, Matthew Dowd, with a little bit of a rant. And it's directed at, uh, what are, are, we, are we up to like maybe six Republican listeners on this podcast?
2: I thought it was only five. Okay. All right. All
0: right. So the five of you out there, look, <laughs> you get what you deserve, okay? You get what you deserve. These people asked you to put them in control of at least one House of Congress. You, you did that for them. And now you see what they're doing. You see exactly what they're doing, okay? Let's compare and contrast the two parties real quick. With Democrats, they wanna, they wanna provide you with cheaper food, less expensive gas, cleaner air to breathe, cleaner water to drink, a planet that isn't burning, better public education, universal health care, protecting social security and Medicare, the list can go on and on and on. These are all things they would love to legislate to benefit you and your children and your families. What is your party about? It's all culture war crap, abortion, gay marriage, trans athletes, the war on Christmas critical race theory they're coming for your guns and your gas stoves that's the new one this week your gas stoves this is all designed to distract you and what are they distracting you from all the shit you should be getting that i just mentioned that democrats want to give you okay think about it what has Dem- what has the republican party given you in terms of economic aid or anything that makes your life better nothing And the reason for that is because they know that when you finally wake up and say to yourself, I need a better job and a higher wage. Wait, what? There are cat litter boxes in bathrooms? No way. You have my vote. That's exactly what happens every single election. Like clockwork. When you start to get pissed off, they throw some culture war bullshit at you and you lap it up like cat like a stray cat with a bowl of milk and I know I know for the cat people in the room here milk is bad for cats I just learned that this week so until you stop doing that you're going to get nothing because they are manipulating you they are using and abusing you wise up people let's get to our guest Matthew Dowd he is a political commentator and strategist New York Times best selling author and media analyst he was chief strategist for President George Bush and Governor California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. He made his own run for office back in 2021 with a bid to be Texas Lieutenant Governor and as a Democrat. He recently joined MSNBC and prior to that was Chief Political Analyst for ABC News for over a decade. His latest book is Revelations on the River, Being a Prophet for Your Own Path. As a philanthropist, Dowd has invested in and has served on the boards of the Catholic nonprofit Seton Family of Hospitals, Texas Habitat for Humanity, and Texas Impact, an interfaith group working on behalf of justice. Matthew, welcome into the back room. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Andy. So before we get into the other stuff, which is certainly a little heavier and more topical, we in the back room love to get a window into someone's soul. So usually that requires two questions, one at the beginning, one at the end. first one is, are you a dog or a cat person?
2: Uh, I would say I'm a dog person. Uh Do you have a- I don't have a dog right now, but I'm a dog person.
0: So you're like dog person adjacent.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't have I don't have a dog, but when I'm around dogs, no, uh, no I love it.
0: No cats. Nope.
2: I've been around cats. I don't have a problem with cats, but I guess I would if I lean one way or the other. A dog, I think, mm-hmm. is is
0: more akin to where I am. That would. It's going to be the uh, the the quote of this uh, interview would probably be I don't have a problem with cats. <laughs> 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 that's that's what's going to make news <laughs> uh the other thing i want to ask you about is you're yeah you, I, I think you're a big uh lions fan right big time yeah i was born in detroit mm-hmm. so they didn't, they didn't make it into the postseason but they had a pretty decent year compared compared to last year right
2: well compared to like the last, <laughs> the last six right? <laughs> decades or so i mean I don't think, I mean, they had a really good year, um, obviously, with the way they started. And, I mean, it's one of these things where every beginning of every season, I'm thinking, okay, this could be it. Maybe we could win and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I've been doing this my entire life, Mm -hmm. my whole life. Yeah. I'm a a, a New
0: York Knicks fan, so I know exactly what you're talking about.
2: Detroit, I mean, people, the the Detroit Lions in my lifetime, which is 61 years, have won one playoff game. (laughs) One playoff game they've won in 61 years. And so I was. People are like, "Why is everybody in Detroit so celebrated?" Jory? they didn't make the class. So that I said, y- "People don't understand. What, if you're a Detroit fan or grew up there, that that we're we're in such a desert." <laughs> Uh, any little like cup or teaspoon of water is will 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 be overjoyed about. So yeah, I've been a Detroit Lions. I've been all I'm an all Detroit team fan because I grew up there going to their games and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm a Detroit
0: Lions fan. That's the thing about sports fans and Trump fans. They're just incredibly loyal to the end no matter what. <laughs> it's just an well, interesting you know, parallel I just thought. Yeah, of. well and but the big
2: difference the one thing I think and I don't know how you are, but one thing I think that I, one of the great things about sports is it's one of the last unifying aspects of society. Mm -hmm. So you could go to a stadium and sit next to, you know, a Trump person, or you could go to, you know, a basketball game, a college football game and and everybody is in the same mode. There's no distinctions and there's no differences whether somebody's super wealthy or just making it by, um, Sports is one of the last, though it's beginning to have its divisions, but sports... Is, and obviously, the D- DeMar Hamlin thing has showed mm-hmm. the unifying nature of things. Of sports, it's one of the last vestiges of a unifying thing in the United
0: States. Yeah, well, it's just... It harkens back to when... Remember when Trump started bashing the NFL... Yeah, and I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, this is this one's not going to work for you, buddy. Because like, you're not going to get those dudes off the couch on Sunday, you know, to to you know, in, in some revenge thing for you. Like, this is where <laughs> they're going to draw the line because when it yeah, comes to sports, they're not going to
2: stop watching the NFL because you told them.
0: Yeah, now I guess it seems like it's more popular than ever. So, who's your Super Bowl prediction?
2: I mean, I I, I it's hard to bet up against Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just hard to bet against him. I mean, I think the Eagles depend on Jalen Hurts and how well he is and all that. But if I had to put, you know, a sort of lean in a direction, um, it's Patrick Mahomes. But, you know, he's got to go through Josh Allen. He's got to go through Joe Burrow. Um, so, but I think if I would lean in one, you, it's just, that guy is such a phenomenal talent and I got to know him and watch him a little bit because he played at Texas Tech, Mm -hmm. which is up at Lubbock. And, you know, obviously they played in the big 10, I mean, in the big 12. So I got to watch him a little bit before he became a pro. The guy is unbelievable
0: yo he is and uh i he's he's in my uh pick too uh except i'm i'm bucking the trend a little bit and i'm 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 looking for a hollywood matchup with him and uh brady i know it's a long yeah. shot but and everybody i would
2: love to see the, that that the, i'd love to see the bills go to the champ at least to the championship just because mm-hmm. it's such a great story right mm-hmm. and my guess is what we're gonna see this weekend uh, when the Bills play their first playoff game and Demar Hamlin is home, mm-hmm. my, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some very something that tugs at all their emotional heartstrings that happens on that day this weekend.
0: Well, it's like the game last week where the first play was a yeah. you know a. a kickoff yeah. return like you can't script that there's a part of me that almost thinks like did the other team you know they let him do that <laughs> a because it was it was just great television and uh, really tugged at the heartstrings so i want to ask you about your childhood sure. were you like an eight-year-old little politics nerd because uh, I, I find that sometimes when you talk to people who work in politics their interest levels uh were obtained at a very early like but i was eight years old and i was hanging around uh which is kind of crazy i was hanging around nixon's local headquarters in my neighborhood and i was passing out bumper stickers and buttons for richard nixon if you can believe that so even at that age i there was something that was brewing was that a similar situation for you yeah it was um i mean i've come from a rather a
2: large irish catholic family that grew up in detroit well one i'm one of 11 uh, kids Jeez. and politics that people weren't my parents weren't active in politics, but politics was always discussed. Mm-hmm. They were very, they were conservative Catholic. Um, that's how they, that's how they were raised. That's how they raised dust. Many of us bucked it, obviously out of 11, many of us bucked it along the way. But I remember my interest went to a whole new level when, during Watergate. And I remember just going, we'd vacation up on one of the great lakes in the summers of the Watergate hearing, I think I was 11 or 12. And I, I didn't go out to the beach. I just watched the, and my brothers and sisters thought I was nuts, you know, like what are you were out here? Why are you doing? And I was inside watching, you know, Sam Irvin (laughs) and Howard Baker and, and, and John Dean and all of that, Mm -hmm. I, I just got entranced by it. And from that moment on, I was like, I want to some way, somehow I want to be involved in this Mm -hmm. and that. After that summer I started volunteering in different stuff in Michigan, I got involved in college. I mean, so it was, I was 11 or 12, got completely hooked through Watergate. Mm. And um, and uh, that was it for me.
0: Yeah, it's funny how that works for some, you know, some kids and other kids could I mean, there are look, there are 50-year-olds who don't understand politics, which is kind of oh, crazy. No. So it's, it's it's fascinating to me when I when people talk about their childhoods and when they were first uh, really hooked on on yeah. Uh, I, I have this.
2: It's how life comes full circle. As you know, it always comes full circle multiple times. Mm-hmm. Circles. So that was my introduction. And then after I had done, yeah, uh, the Bush campaign, I was you know chief strategist for Bush in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Bob Woodward called me up and asked me to sit down with him at his place in Washington, DC and go through, he was writing a book about Bush and go through a bunch of stuff on that. And I just paused him and I said, I said, I, I just want you to know <laughs> that one. the reason I'm here has a large part to do with you hmm. uh, because of what he did with Woodward and Bernstein and all that. And so it was just such a full circle thing that my start. And then as I was beginning to sort of process out of date the daily sort of grind of it, I sat down with one of the guys that was probably instrumental in my introduction into politics.
0: It's so funny you mentioned Woodward. I mean, basically, I've been spending my whole life waiting to be able to say, "Bob Woodward called me." But I, I you well, know, I, st- I my degree was journalism, and and I, Woodward and Bernstein were, and Watergate was a, a big motivator for me as well. And I remember a few short years ago, I was walking in Lower Manhattan uh, during the summer, and I walked past this restaurant with an outdoor. Uh, seating area and Carl Bernstein was sitting there by himself and I walked past and I got about 20 feet past him and I said to myself you're gonna regret this if you don't stop turn around <laughs> and go say hi and I turned around and I said Mr. Bernstein it's an honor to meet you back in J school you were like you know you're god and you, you still are and it's an honor to meet you and he was so gracious and so friendly and he was like oh thank you very much good thanks for stopping by and I was like okay that's cross that one off the bucket list Very funny. So, Bush, you had this infamous break with him in 2007. Can you explain a little bit about what brought that on? Sure. So just a little
2: intro into that. So I was doing Democratic campaigns, um, which I had done most of my adult life. And I got out of politics, started a business in Austin, a sort of public affairs, public relations business. Got out of politics, had run the lieutenant governor of Texas's campaign in 1990 and 1994 and in texas it's different than most other states the democ the the lieutenant governor is elected separately from separately from the governor Mm -hmm. and you can have a democrat lieutenant governor republican governor or vice versa in that and it was this old style politician kind of cut out of the lbj cloth a guy named bob bullock and i ran his campaign in 90 and in 94 um and actually had helped Dan Richards in 90. And in in 94, I w- left my company again and went and r- ran the campaign. And I got to know Bush in that process, in in the process of that, and then in the aftermath when Bullock was lieutenant governor as a Democrat and Bush was the governor. And I started, to, Bush was, was actually really good here in Texas of like, how do I cross the aisle? Because he had to deal with a Democratic Speaker of the House at mm-hmm. the time hard for people to believe that we had a democratic speaker of the house and a democratic lieutenant governor and the lieutenant governor in texas basically runs the state senate so it's not like a ceremonial position he he's probably the most powerful elected official in texas is lieutenant governor of texas Mm -hmm. because he's elected statewide and he gets to run half of the legislative branch and i got to know him then liked him liked what he was doing in crossing the aisle and all of that had no interest really at that point to get back in politics. I was I, I was sort of out getting out of it, it in that way. And then he uh, he and Karl Rove approached me because um, they knew through Bullock that I liked Bush approached me about doing the campaign. Um, and I was one of the former Democrats, there was a few of us that sort of became worked on the Bush campaign. And my whole my whole desire in that was like if we could do in Washington what was done in Texas where you could work with Democrats and get mm. stuff done. That was sort of my desire, and that was really what Bush's push was uh, in the early days in sitting down with us and all of that. So fast forward, 2004, I'm both the chief strategist. I began in 2004 to have misgivings about it all. I, I the, the reality was when Cheney was first picked in 2000, I was like, ah, because I wasn't, I, I was opposed to the Cheney pick internally, right? Um, I thought it was a bad move. I didn't think it was the right direction. I actually wanted Senator Danforth, former Senator Danforth of Missouri, who I thought would have been a great vice president, you know, former minister, Episcopal minister, really good guy, moderate Republican, but he chose Cheney. And that was like, well, this doesn't seem like it's going in the direction I thought, but you know, it'll be fine. And it's, you know, it's these constant things of, we bargain with ourselves when you like get immersed in it, then you bargain with yourself, which Mm -hmm. I did throughout 2004, I had a lot of misgivings about Iraq. Um, I had a, my oldest son enlisted. (laughs) He went to boot camp a week before election day in 2004, which was really hard. I mean, he obviously was going there and he was going to do two tours of duty in Iraq. Um, but it was, I was sitting there I remember on election night on 2004 thinking I'm about to get reelected. The guy that's going to send my son into war. Mm. Right. And, and then there was, so that was, I was beginning to say this maybe is not right. And so I didn't go to the inauguration in the aftermath cause I was just like, I don't want any part of it. I just don't want any more of this. And then Bush did a series of things. Quickly in the aftermath, he he renominated John Bolton, who had the Senate had said, sort of said we don't want him, and he renominated him. And I was like, this isn't like bipartisanship. Why are we putting this John Bolton character, who I never liked, in this position? And then he pushed for you know privatizing Social Security in the beginning of 2005. This may be too much detail for you, but in 2005. And I had been pushing, like, why don't we go into immigration reform? That was Mm -hmm. like, that's what we do. We have a chance. We have an opportunity. We need to know, get it done. And the White House chose to go towards privatizing Social Security. At that point, I was like, done. I was like, I don't want any more to do with this. I'm going to step back. I don't really want active involvement in this.
0: And were you a Republican at that point? Because I know you've sort of... I was still a
2: Republican Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, But, you know, know, my Republicanship... (laughs) was all tied up into working for Bush. I never sort of worked outside of that realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't like I was going out and like, let's elect 22 congressmen and, you know, five senators. It was more Bush related. And in the process, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wrenching process because you're, you've reached the culmination of your career. And for a person that like me, that's a political operative or done that, like working, as chief strategist for a presidential campaign is about, is as high as you can go in that realm. So mm-hmm. you achieve this pinnacle. And then, you know, everybody's, you know, wants to be your friend and all of that. And um, it was a slow process of coming to terms with, I needed to jettison this completely. And in that process, I realized sort of my approach to life karmically was that I couldn't just go quietly. Like many many of the former Bush guys just went quietly. They were like, okay, this isn't turning out. I'm just going to go quietly. I felt that in order to equalize the karma in the world, I was such a public advocate of Bush, I had to speak out publicly. Mm. And so I came to that conclusion and I started to do it in a slow way. And it was related over two big things. The fact that we didn't live up to what we said we were going to do, which is bipartisanship and bring the country together and unify the country and bring everybody together and get past polarization we didn't do that and the iraq war and so i started that process with like a local a local texas monthly is a local magazine i did a thing where i said like i it didn't meet my expectations and all of that i had a thing in california at berkeley because i did schwarzenegger's race in mm-hmm. 2006 which was another sort of break in it because schwarzenegger wasn't your typical republican and diehard republicans didn't really like him I did his race, and then in the aftermath of this race, there was a session at Berkeley where we were talking about um, the Schwarzenegger campaign and how we won and blah, blah, blah with Steve Schmidt. I was doing it with Steve Schmidt, interestingly, who I worked with with Bush in 2004 and in Schwarzenegger in 2006. Um, and somebody got up and asked a question, you know, a, a very anti-Bush person got up and asked a question, basically was saying... I want you- pretty close to what he asked was, how do you live with yourself having, you know, sent, sent, you know, people to war and die for oil? That's what he basically Mm -hmm. said. And it was, the moderator was like, no, 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 that's not what this is about. And I was like, no, I want to take care of this. And and I, so I went off into this thing as I, so I was like, what you may not know is that my oldest son did two tours in that. What you might not know is I've struggled with this. And many of us, i said, maybe you're, you know, wiser than me at 22 years old, but when you're, when you fulfill a dream and that dream doesn't turn out to be the way you thought it was, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: how you break with that or how you come to terms with that is a process. Mm -hmm. And then that happened, that got reported on. And then (laughs) Jim Rutenberg from the New York times, who I knew he was a friend of mine, called me up and say, I have seen these couple of things. Would you want to sit down and chat about it? And so I, I was like, sure. So he flew down to Austin we went and met at a Mexican restaurant like 150 feet from where the Bush campaign was headquartered in that. And I didn't, I didn't think like I'm going to have to buck up my courage and do all this. I was like, sure. So I went in this long thing and, and, and I was like, sure, I'll tell you the story. And this is where I, this is where I think it went off and this is what's the problem, blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay. Uh, and I knew he was going to have to call the white house and all of that. And, um, he called me up on the Saturday and this is 2007. He called Jim McCullough and said, just want you to know, in case you want to turn off your phone, the story is going to break tomorrow morning. this is sun, it'll break Sunday. And I, I was like, okay, whatever. And he goes, and it's on the front page of the New York times. No. And, I, and he goes, and he said the front page of the Sunday, New York times. And he goes above the fold." And I was like, why is this on the front page of New York? Times? who cares? I mean, I'm just like, whatever. And he goes well it's a big story because you're the first one to publicly do this so uh that then you know precipitated a lot of other stuff and I and I was very honest and that that I basically said it's the war and, and not meeting our mm-hmm. our our what we campaigned on which was bringing the country together
0: so long story no no good story and uh, my sense of Bush is that he's a pretty vindictive guy. So in terms of your relationship with him today, I would say that uh, my guess would be that it's uh, not a good one.
2: Um, I haven't talked to him. Uh, there's people i have talked to him. people I wouldn't uh, I don't know if he's vindictive. I mean, I got to know him. There's many people around him that are very vindictive, not the least of which was Carl Rowe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the aftermath of that, I had a you know pete, it's funny how people accuse me of like doing things like, oh, he only did this because it was going to benefit him. I mean, I lost more than half the clients of our mm-hmm, company mm-hmm. in the aftermath of this because I broke with Bush publicly and all that. And I didn't even think about it in the aftermath of that. But Bush was I, what I heard was Bush was more hurt by it. This is what I heard from people close to him. than he was really angry about it. But mm-hmm. I, I tell you, one of the surreal moments was I was flying back from Washington. I think it was the Monday after or the Tuesday after. And Bush is holding a press conference, a press briefing. And I'm watching it in the national airport and Bush is asked about me. Hmm. <laughs> and at that point, and, I, I would imagine like,
0: that's something you never really want to be as the subject of a presidential press conference. That can't be good <laughs> either way. <laughs> no, especially especially
2: when I mean, loyalty to me is a very important thing. It's was I was raised in it, especially loyalty and family and loyalty and mm-hmm. that. And so it's a it's a very important thing to me. But, and many of the Bush people called me up and said, you know, called me up after, how can you be disloyal, disloyal, disloyal? And I, I, I've always thought of loyalty, on a hierarchy, right? And yes, loyalty is an important value. But loyalty is a hierarchy. Yes, you should be loyal to a person, but if the person is is running, running counter to what you believe is truth and your truth, you have to be loyal to something higher than the person or the party.
0: Right, And it, so, but isn't, yeah. that, isn't that the problem with the Republican Party today? That is precisely okay. the problem with the Republican Party. All the things we've been talking about, the things you've talked about, don't exist. There's, there's no higher uh, authority. There's no greater value system. It's all about self and and greed and fealty and all these things that we see and I think that's why we're in such a toxic place right now. No.
2: Oh no, I. It's completely agree. Every time they, you know, the whole Trump years, and I mean, it obviously started before then. I tell people that this wasn't caused by Trump. This was revealed more by Trump than caused, though mm-hmm. he exacerbated it. Um, I mean, you could see it coming for a long time. Which is this, this idea that personal power or political power, not to serve a greater good right? Not to serve the common good, but to serve some particular either personal ends or some particular ends of a, of a small group in society. That's all they care about. And it, everything that's unfolded in the last two weeks in the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. is a perfect clarification of that.
0: So let's talk about that because this has been a busy week, week and a half, two weeks. The House just seems like it's in a state of chaos uh McCarthy is a straight-jacketed speaker we likely have shadow speakers in Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Boebert and Chip Roy and all those uh rebels how can how can this end up in a good place for the Republican Party on any conceivable level how is this not a gift to the Democratic Party
2: um well, I think in the short term, I think they feel like they can enhance their own in the same way we just described about it. If their goal isn't to accomplish public policy, but their goal is performance and and achieving some level of personal political power in this, then, then obviously it's successful for them in that way, mm-hmm. right?
0: But I mean, for, um, for, with with the exception of a four-vote margin win in the House, that has not worked for them in the last four years or so of, of pretty much every election that we've had it's not it doesn't seem like that's a winning strategy that performative strategy
2: well no no not if you want the majority of americans behind you right so then the, but i think they've given up on the idea that they want the majority of americans behind them and i think they're right. using every 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 broken means of our democracy and i believe that our democracy is broken to a degree mm-hmm. because we no longer have representative government we don't have a a government that represents the majority of the people mm-hmm. and so in the short term because of the way gerrymandering and our and the way people have live and move in states and the way our senate is elected and the way the electoral college is they can benefit from it from that in the short term so i think they can win the senate back in t- 2024. my odds are i think they win the senate back because of the seats that are up and all of the situation hmm is I think the likelihood of what happens twenty twenty four is the Democrats take back the House and the Republicans take the Senate. And then you have an electoral college situation where you could easily have if it's not Trump, and I don't think Trump can win, but if it's not Trump and it's somebody like Trump, Trump light like DeSantis or whatever, Ron DeSantis can win the electoral college. Because of the way the patterns mm-hmm. are, are in our country, even though he'll likely lose the popular vote by
0: five, six, seven million votes. At, at, well, yeah, as do most Republicans who, who run for president. I mean, they haven't, you know, for the most part, haven't won the popular vote. Uh, so, in the they're, so in the short term,
2: they can take advantage of the divisions and the way, the structure of our democracy that is, in my view, unrepresentative today to achieve some political success. But mm-hmm. they can't. They don't have the majority of the country, and at some point, that domino falls, and they're no longer capable of winning elections. But you know, look at the United States Senate and how states—I mean, Mississippi, Alabama, and and you know, Idaho have as many senators as California, Texas, and New York.
0: Right. Yeah. No, it's it, it's not a it's not a fair system, and it needs it needs to be abolished. But that's that's uh, we're not going to solve that issue here today. But uh, so. You look at the moves that they've made, whether it's getting rid of the, you know, gutting the ethics committee or, you know, uh, talk of stripping Swalwell and Schiff of their committee assignments to expunging the Trump impeachments. Like, what happened to inflation and crime and jobs and all the important, I'm, I'm not even talking about like Hunter Biden's laptop yet. Like that's like phase two of the the governing. Like. It just seems like it is going to be, they're, they're going to be tripping over themselves with bullshit the next two years. Vindictive, yeah, grievance based bullshit.
2: Yeah, I thought, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but right before election day and after election day, I thought the best thing that could happen for Democrats, and I thought the likely thing that was going to happen for Democrats is they'd keep the Senate, lose the House, but not by a lot. And I thought... That Republicans would demonstrate their complete craziness and dysfunction and all of that for America to see in a contrasting way. Here's how the House is run and here's how the Senate is run and here's how what Democrats do when they hold office and here's what Republicans do and hold office. I had no idea it was going to start before they actually were sworn in. Right. I mean, I had no idea this craziness. And to your point,
0: point. that was exemplified by while this craziness is going down in the House, you've got Biden and McConnell standing beside each other in Kentucky talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's benefiting Kentuckians. A complete, complete contrast.
2: And then you look at all these elected, Democratic elected officials in states who are just trying to get the job done, whether it's governor, secretary of state, attorney general or whatever. And so, but I don't think they they maybe there's probably some members who are devoted to policy and want things to happen. And I'm sure there are Republican members that are, but the vast majority of them are only interested in, in how they can perform Mm -hmm. in a way that generates social media stuff Mm -hmm. or contributions or whatever the thing happens to be. And I'd like to tell people there's no difference right now. We, We, the media kept separating the 20, you know, rebels, whatever, and the other, well, there's no difference between them, right? They're they're the same. They just happen to be holding out because they didn't like McCarthy personally. It wasn't because they didn't like the direction where they were gonna go, it's they just didn't like McCarthy. Because as I tell people, Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos and Jim Jordan were all McCarthy people. They were all part of quote, unquote, the same group. And so <laughs> that's all, I mean, that's all they care about in the course of this because they have no real interest their whole goal is in the short term to keep performing in a way that drives the cultural divide in a way that they think they will benefit.
0: Mm-hmm. And so to to the manifest destiny of McCarthy, like who do you think, what do you think's going to last longer, the head of lettuce or Kevin McCarthy?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, he's definitely, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's speaker come uh January 2025, for sure, mm-hmm. for, for sure. Um, I won't, I mean, I, it's hard to predict things in such a disruptive time. I don't know if he, if he can last for the next two years till mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. in the force of this, but I think that's somewhat contingent on, well, I, I had some hope that these, you know, there's eight or 10 sort of moderate Republicans in the House who hold Biden districts, mm-hmm. especially those ones in New York mm-hmm. and those ones in California, which is more than half, You know, it's like 10 or 12 are Biden districts in New York, New Jersey and California. I thought they would come to the conclusion, which I don't still don't understand, is they have more power than anyone else Mm -hmm. because they could sit there and say, we're going to do this as a group. We're going to go over the Democrats and we're going to cut deals. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's. But every single vote since McCarthy has been speaker, every single vote, whether it's on the abortion stuff, the rules, Mm the crazy stuff about saying they're going to fire, you know, the eighty-seven thousand IRS agents, all that, those, all of those supposed moderates who are in Biden districts have all voted completely in line with Kevin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, you know, he, maybe he has a better handle on his crazy caucus than we think mm-hmm. that, that the Marjorie Taylor greens may not be far different from who we thought was a moderate in New York or California,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and what about they Santos? Just are quieter. What? Where?
0: What, what? Where do you think the Santos saga goes?
2: I think he ends up resigning because mm-hmm. I think the it. I think he ends up resigning mainly from from some local political pressure, but you know McCarthy's answer to that the other day was so ludicrous when he said, "Well, the voters put him in office," and the blah blah blah. And I was like, "No, the voters didn't put him in office. They
0: put somebody else in office. It <laughs> yeah, was a fiction. Yeah, they put the Baruch grad and the the Holocaust family survivor guy in. Not not yeah, Santos. That's who
2: they they voted for. A hologram of George Santos.
0: <laughs> um, but he's so emblematic of the swamp that is the mm-hmm. GOP. And with the margin being four votes, you know, McCarthy is just you know he's being politically expedient." Uh, can he afford, and, and, you know, when you talk about Santos resigning, that, that sort of has to sur- indicate a little bit of, or a lot of contrition and self-reflection, like he's a sociopath, right? So sociopaths don't go through that. I mean, you heard him with Matt Gates interviewed, uh, Matt Gates, I guess was subbing for yeah. Bannon in the war room. Uh, Matt Gates, by the way, interviewing Santos is like, that's, it's like an Onion, uh, article. But, uh... Santos says, I've lived an honest life. That's a direct quote. <laughs> I've lived an honest life. So is that the guy that's going to resign? Doesn't sound like it. Well, I think, like all sociopaths
2: and narcissists, that I think his resignation will be about self-preservation, more about self-preservation than it will be about honor. Mm-hmm. Right? He'll, he won't do the honorable thing. He'll do the thing that's self-preservation because... I think this this whole finance thing related to him and his money and the money that got into his campaign and how he went from basically almost being on the street to being worth fifteen million dollars, all of that. I think at some point, he comes to the conclusion of of saving his own hide, in this like all sociopaths do, um, and that will be his that will, will will put puts him in the place of le- this is what I think and who knows that he'll leave office, but it's not going to be about about the House of Representatives holding him accountable for all his lies and right. deceiving the public and all of that. Why would they? This is what I said. Why would they do that when they a guy that told lied 40,000 times they supported every
0: step of the way along the way. Right. So speaking of a guy who's told 40,000 lies every step along the way, <laughs> Donald Trump. What wh- what happens to him? Is he going do you think he gets indicted? And if so, in what jurisdiction? And for what?
2: Um I I have—it's hard for me, having watched this process and Donald Trump escape from, from accountability so many frickin' times. I mean, I would like to believe he's going to be indicted, and I will be uh, ecstatic if he is. I still don't know if that will happen because the history of this is, is uh, that, he, that he won't be held accountable unfortunately. And I think it's another aspect of our brokenness in our society where justice doesn't seem to always occur for wealthy or prominent people in our society. And Mm -hmm. it seldom happens. And so I hope it does. Um, I I wish it would. I think if politics wasn't being, the funny thing is is the Republicans think this is all about politics, but I actually think if politics wasn't considered, he'd long been indicted. Right. If politics wasn't a consideration, he would have been indicted long ago. Well, of
0: course. Well if it, you did what he did or I did, we'd we'd be writing, you know, we'd be writing hieroglyphics on the prison walls already. So uh so yesterday I'd have a Raquel Welch poster <laughs> and I'd be digging a hole. Uh, you just ate, you just <laughs> but, aged us both.
2: <laughs> so that's from Shawshank.
0: Yeah. Um so yesterday, Garland Merrick Garland, Attorney General, announced uh, that he's appointed uh, uh, Robert Herr as special prosecutor to look into the Biden documents situation, which is just a whole surreal thing when you think about it, because everything was going so well for the Democrats. But tied back into Trump, like in the last 24 hours is like a million pundits on either side who are saying this either makes it more likely Trump gets indicted or less likely that it's going to negatively impact uh because Garland just shot himself in the foot. What do you think?
2: Um I mean I I don't know. I mean that's such a I don't that's such a like a black ball. Mm-hmm. Take a black ball. and look at it and see what the deal is. I, I I I actually think it will end up being a good thing for the Democrats. I this is what I believe. I mean, do I believe that that this this in itself, in a legal way, should have been a special counsel? No, I don't think so because I don't think it met the ramifications. But we're in, we're way past the time right. where you have to consider just those things. But I think it will show. This is what my expectation. That it will show when this is finally unfolds. It will show that Biden's thing, while while irresponsible or whomever was involved in it was a, was an inadvertent error and a mistake in this, and Trump's was a mm-hmm. concerted effort to undermine the law and the system and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so that contrast will, I think, will be beneficial, whether or not I don't think Biden, I think maybe there's some staffer that is there they're, they have to deal with something or whatever because they weren't as responsible as they should. I don't think Joe Biden had anything to do with it. And having watched transitions in Bush time, um, I mean, there's millions of pieces of paper. And my guess is if you went back and looked for the last 40 years, the, at, at vice presidents, presidents and chief of staffs, mm-hmm. every single one of them inadvertently took papers out of the white house that they should, not mm-hmm. it's just boxes of crap and stuff everywhere. Right. And you're just trying to get out as quick as you can and all of that stuff, whether that's Democrat, Republican, they've mm-hmm. all done it. Mm-hmm. We just never heard about it. But, um. I think that's what will end up with biden so mm-hmm. i think the contrast is good it's just a, a a short-term political problem for the white house because as you know what most people and supposedly m- most low information folks and independents and all that they look at the headline in right. classified documents biden trump special counsel and Same that's kind of all the focus on
0: right yeah well and you know i think you're right i think in the end intent and obstruction and public statements and all that is going to be the thing that contra- contra- uh, contrasts the two. You know, you're right. If we go back decades and decades, it probably existed with everybody else. But, the, you know, the difference with Trump is that he's the only one that actually said, they're mine. <laughs> like after he no, was told... I'm saying the
2: inadvertent thing happened over and over. Donald Trump is, is a is a whole new degree of of stuff. Right.
0: right? And, and so what Garland is doing, I, I think he's in a really thick bind. He's in a no-win situation. He's going to be damned if, you know, damned if I do, damned if I don't. There's never going to be a scenario that's acceptable to the Republicans, to the the the, the extremist wing of the Republican Party, There's, especially if Trump gets indicted and Biden doesn't. So, I, I mean, I, I just don't know, I don't know what in the, in the end, if Garland is trying his damnedest, which he is, to look impartial, to be fair, you know, to create a, a balance and equity, Who's who is he pitching that to. You know what I mean? Like those people don't care about that. Here's my
2: fault. Here's where I find fault with Merrick Garland, who I think is an impressive person and from all intents and person is a person of great integrity, is Merrick Garland. And this was my fault of Joe Biden early on. Merrick Garland and Joe Biden were acting as if they could go back to a Washington, the Washington, D.C. that they had in their in their childhood right. or whatever, or their you know, adulthood, that still existed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Right, right. That's gone. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party, as they knew it, of people that were, might be conservative but were rational and reasonable and had integrity is gone. But And Joe Biden, finally, it took him a while. He finally came you know, He finally went through the stages of grief, right, where he was in denial and then he was angry and then he finally got acceptance. This is who they are, mm-hmm. right? And now he's dealt with them that way. He got there. I think Merrick Garland still thinks as if I can, cre- I can do the right thing and create the perception so that it will be acceptable mm-hmm. to all, all players in this. And that's a fiction. Yep. That, that doesn't exist. And I, in my view, he would be much better off in saying the perception be damned, the criticism be damned. I don't do this. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's, what's according to law and justice and the truth. And this is what doing. I don't care who says what or what they say. And I'm not going to worry about quote unquote creating perceptions or showing that I'm bipartisan because it doesn't matter.
0: Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No, there's no one that's going to be like, hey, he he did what was right. <laughs> it's like it's not going to happen that way. All right. So my last question is the second question of the uh, window into the soul. Music. Big window into the soul. Give me your top five artists of all time.
2: Uh, Johnny Cash. Um, uh, Merle Haggard. Um, you can see, see, a theme here. Um, <laughs> uh, Wait,
0: you're from Texas, right?
2: <laughs> no, I'm from Detroit originally.
0: Ah, uh, there you so, go. So and you got, M- uh, is Eminem in there?
2: <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't call it, I like Eminem, but he's not my top five, um, uh, at all. Bob Seger. Mm-hmm. I'll give you Bob Seger's in my top five and he's from, he's a, he's a Motown, he's a Motor City guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh let's see who else if i could go um uh frank sinatra i i'm i mean you probably i'm probably like not the (laughs) frank sinatra is up there um i have to say i've oh i've always had a huge elvis presley is a a one he was such a groundbreaker of music and and Mm-hmm. In, in, in both, both taking music from one race and adopting it to another, and adopting it in that way, um, so Elvis would be up there. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm trying to think if there's, uh, um, yeah, that would be. I thought that would be it.
0: Okay, and uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't call attention to the fact that uh, Lisa Marie Presley tragically yeah. suddenly died yesterday i think she was 52 oh, just or 54 awful sad
2: news especially after watching her at that at the golden globes when uh, austin butler who i i'm fascinated by his uh, his
0: morphing yeah. into elvis as a person yes <laughs> it's kind of crazy when he smiles the cheek uh, it's like whoa, I, that's and then what right I
2: was watching an interview with them. This was before that, and I noticed it. I think it was with not with Jimmy Kimmel, Fallon, Jimmy Fallon, and I was like, where did this southern accent come from? And he was just talking regularly. He wasn't mm-hmm. like, and and I saw he he gave an explanation for it, which was you know I was immersed in this for three years and all of this, and it became part of my DNA and all of that, but. It's a, I mean, he did a phenomenal job in that mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. I've, we watched that movie three times and it's just his his ability
0: to become Elvis yep. was amazing. Transcended. Uh, Matthew, you've been very generous with your time. It was an honor to have you on and I hope you come back again soon. All right, I'd be
2: happy to. And Andy, thanks for all you do in uh, preserving and protecting our democracy. Ah, the mad
0: The mad tweeter. <laughs> Take care, Matthew. You too, man. So there you have it, episode 34 in the can. Got something to say? Leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. Or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please rate and leave a review. That stuff matters. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Matthew Dowd. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.